Father, we wish to celebrate this time of year in purity of spirit, that we recognize that it's not about the gifts that are given, but the greatest gift that you have given to us. And may we keep this in the forefront of our minds. May we be witnesses of your birth and your ministry here as this Christmas time approaches. May we, if we haven't developed a routine at Christmas of telling others about you and giving you thanks for just the wonderful gift of life. And Father, as we look at the New Testament church here in the book of Acts, we would ask for your blessing, your insight, your wisdom, that your Holy Spirit would teach us as we go through these pages that we might be able to be strengthened in our faith and also give a reason for the hope that lies within that why we follow you and that we wish to follow you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So, Father, enlighten us, teach us, guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, In those days, when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal seemed or pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so it looks like there's a lot of blessings going on. Remember, this is thousands of people here. And by the time this has taken place, it's probably four, maybe five years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So you have this church mass of people. Now, they probably didn't have a stadium to meet in. That's why they met in Solomon's Colonnade up in the temple area because it was a large area. But then the 12 apostles would get together and they would decide who gets food and who doesn't get food. And some of the needs of the people there were becoming overwhelming and they were being dragged away from the responsibility of teaching, ministering the word and prayer. And they thought that this is not a good thing. So you, know, you have to keep in mind, there were 12 of these guys there. And just to remind you who they were, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, which is also known as Judas, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who was replaced by Matthias. And so those were the 12. And they would kind of hang out together. You would have like the council of the 12. And they dictated <clears throat> all the doctrine. All of them were involved in healing and giving instruction to the people. And they would probably go up to Solomon's Colonnade. And they would sit there. And people would come around whether they wanted to be healed or they wanted to be taught. There would be a devotion of some type. They would fellowship up in that area. And they would disperse probably to homes or some larger homes. And a few would gather there. And that's kind of how the church 
was growing at that time. But the problems of the early church were being dealt with because so many people were coming in. And I told you about Ananias and Sapphira. Of course, the Lord uh, judged them for lying. But then there's the neglect of the Grecian Jewish widows. And they were showing favoritism. So favoritism was active in the first century church. Now, we only have a couple of instances here in the first few years of the church of problems, but I'm sure there were many more problems than what were written down. Every church will have its problems. There'll be people who have the gifts of organization that disagree with the people who have a vision for what something else should look like, and they clash on those things or how hospitality should be handled or how the food should be distributed to those people. Back in this time, they would have food banks. We have food banks today, not here, but we're involved in the Lakeside Health Center and they provide food for the people. And there's also also the secular areas where you can go and get food, but you put people together and what are you going to have? You're going to have conflict. That's just the way it goes. Being on several construction sites, there's always conflict of how something should be accomplished. The goal is the same, but how do you get to that goal and what kind of quality goes into that work? And I'm sure there were some kind of people or some people there that were of the mindset, well, we have to do this for the Lord. Let's just get it done. And the person with the gift of organization say, we're doing this for the Lord. It has to be done right. And we can't take shortcuts. And so there would be a conflict going on with that. And so with administration to the widows who needed food, and remember, there were outlines for how the widows were to be taken care of, and they had to be a believer. They had to be active in the church. And if they were in need, they were to be helped at that time. If they were younger, they were not to be put on the list of widows to be assisted by those in the church and so there were some guidelines for that but this problem was rising to the surface and there could have been certainly dozens but maybe even hundreds of widows that needed food they needed care of some kind and so there was this complaint delivered to the church leaders there was a conference they sat down they figured out so what are we going to do about this so you could see the 12 huddling well what do you think well, how do you think we should handle this, Thaddeus? What, what are your opinions on this? And Peter would probably speak up and say, I, you know, I think we ought to do that. And so they're conversing. What should take place? And so they had this conference. And as the apostles came to a conclusion, they wanted to solve this dilemma. They, they felt they wanted to help, but they had no time. They probably said to each other, well, what are we supposed to do about this? Look at all the people. We can't be doing this and also give the word out and the healings that need to take place, doing some of that. And there are other people that were healing, I'm sure, leaders in the church there. We'll find out Stephen was one of them, the one who was martyred. But they had specific duties that they were in charge of and they were running out of time themselves. And so this decision was made to select seven men and assign them the task. Now, if you go back, I think it's in verse 2 or verse 5, it says to wait on tables. That word that is used there is the same word that we have for deacon. And to wait on tables means you want to serve or be active in serving. So a deacon is supposed to serve. Now, just as a sideline, it does talk about, I believe, in uh, Romans chapter 16, Phoebe. She is talked about there by Paul, and she was the one that was serving, or she was also a deacon. And there is this idea that women can be deaconesses as well. I think Scripture prohibits women from being 
pastors or elders, but certainly not, in my opinion, is it deacons. Some would argue against that, but I would hold to uh, women are some of the greatest people of service inside the church, and I think it's okay for them to hold that particular office of being a deaconess. And so they decided that the duties of the people in charge were to be the ministering of the word and prayer. Now, it is not wrong for somebody in a position of leadership to take care of these other duties as well. If there are some duties that uh, are in need of right away, say it's changing light bulbs or serving hospitality or whatever case it is, in Calvary Chapels we have the servant model of leadership. The greatest in God's kingdom is supposed to be the servant of all. And so whatever the pastor or elders or deacons have to do, they will do any job whatsoever. All of them inside the church should be involved in that if necessary. And never say, well, that's not my position or that's not my job. Or some people just in the church who have particular gifts, they shouldn't say, well, my, my gift is teaching and so I'm not going to be involved in service. That's a very poor excuse. We're to serve whenever the opportunity arises. And if no one else is available, we're to hop in ourselves. And so the duties of deacons are to care for the tasks of ministry, the actual hands-on, the daily uh, drudgery, so to speak, that can be involved in any endeavor, whether it's vacuuming, whether it's serving meals, whether it's getting clothing, whether it's providing counsel, all of that is to be taken care of by the deacons in the church. Now, this is something that has been throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. Remember Abraham? Let's see how good your memory is. Abraham had a servant. He sent the servant to get a wife for his son. Do you remember the name of the servant? Eliezer. That was his name. Eliezer was sent and he was in charge of Abraham's household. So Abraham didn't do everything. He shifted the responsibility to Eliezer. Then Jacob, he had 12 sons. The 12 sons took care of the flocks out there. They were the husbandmen, so to speak. And then there was Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh, he hired somebody to take care of the entire country. And that was Joseph. He delegated it to Joseph. And Joseph, in turn, delegated that responsibility to others who are out there. Then how about Moses? Moses was given counsel. Remember the name of his father-in-law? Beverly Hillbillies? Jethro, that was his name. Jethro was the one who came along and he saw what Moses was doing, how from sunup to sundown he would sit there at the tent and people would come to him and they would have their disputes settled by Moses. And Jethro said, you know, this is not good what you were doing. And he said, you need to make sure that you get some capable men and have them rule over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And he broke it down. So there needed to be a graduated uh, line of men who were able to adjudicate any issues that came up. And very few would get to the thousands and only the most difficult would get to Moses. And so that freed him up for the ministry of the word and for prayer and and, uh, going before God. Then there was a guy by the name of Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah? He was in charge of building the walls. He was cupbearer to the king Xerxes, or Artaxerxes. 
And he also put his brother Hanani and along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. And so he would put them in charge. And on top of that, he charged all the residents to protect their area of the wall that was next to their house. So he delegated everything that was there. So this is nothing new. And it's always wise not to micromanage, to make all the decisions for everything that needs to take place. And you need to give people responsibility. When you do that, are there going to be mistakes according to you? Yes, there are going to be mistakes. Do you allow those mistakes to take place? Yes, because people learn by mistakes. It's like a little child when they begin to walk. Do you always stop them from falling? No, because they learn from their mistakes and they get their balance and they're able to walk out there and and they learn first how to crawl and then how to walk and then how to run and then they can run the race, so to speak. So we let people fail. The problem that we have is, especially in our society today, we want to have a utopian society where nobody makes mistakes and nobody gets hurt. If you're going to take risks, you're going to get hurt. These seven deacons that were appointed here They're going to make mistakes and you have to allow for those mistakes and disagreements must arise amongst you to show which of you has God's favor. That's part of the church as well, but the mistakes must come and that's where the grace and the mercy comes in. And then there was Paul. Paul sent Titus to churches to appoint elders in those churches. And so he didn't do it all himself. And then the choice of the church leaders, these individuals, Stephen, Philip, Brocornus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, all of these names are Greek. These are Greek names. So the problem was arising with the Greek believers, and so they appointed seven, look like Greek, background men, especially Nicholas was from Antioch. He was not a Jew by birth, but Stephen was a Jew by birth. And so all of them had Greek names, but not all of them were Greek. I don't know the difference between the Greeks and the Jews and these number of seven, which ones were and which ones weren't uh, Jews. But we know that there was a mixture. And this pleased everyone. They said, no, this is a good deal. And it looks like Stephen was in charge of these guys. And so they installed these by the apostles laying on the hands and praying for them. And as a result of them doing this, then the church increased and the numbers were just incredible. I'm sure they're standing back just in awe of what was taking place. It says, so the word of God spread, the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now I'm sure that this just really made mad the Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees were the priests, the ruling party. And these priests, Levites as well, could have come over to the faith. And they were probably just apoplectic, going, what is going on? we got to stop this. Look at this movement. It's just going on. And they couldn't stand it. So they appointed these deacons to help with the growth of the church. And there were characteristics of these individuals. The characteristics that they were looking for were capable men, men who feared God, and men and women that were willing to step forward. You don't want to appoint somebody in a position that's not willing. They have to have the willing heart, and they have to be capable. 
You don't put a child in charge of administrating a large company, right? You have to look at the gifts that the individual has, and that's what they did. And there's a full list of qualifications for a deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Right before that, it gives the qualifications for an elder. For instance, an elder has to be the husband of one wife. And when you read that, some people say, well, you can only marry one woman for the rest of your life, even if she dies. No, I think it's one woman at a time. You know, if, if one of them dies, then you can marry another one. If she dies, you can marry another one. It just depends how old you are. But if you have that many wives dying, I would check into why are they dying. But it, it comes to the deacons here in chapter 3, verse 8 of First Timothy. It says, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine. doesn't mean a prohibition on wine. It means they're not drunkards. And not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. Now, this is not sit down and have a test. Like, let's see how much of the Old Testament you know. That would become evident over time. This is a test in their faithfulness. Are they showing up all the time? Are they involved in the lives of the believers? Do they miss church more than they are attending church? That type of thing. And then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be worthy women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I think it is not explicit here, but it's certainly implied or inferred that he manages his children well. Usually those who serve in the church in this kind of capacity, they need to be a little bit younger. Why? Well, imagine you know, when I get to 80 years old, I'm probably going to be asking a young man, could you move this ladder, please? Now, can you help me down this step, please? Or whatever the case might be, I don't know what kind of condition I'm going to be in then. But the young men will say, I got this. If, if we were in the Midwest or down in the South and there was a flood that was coming through, you're not going to see the older guys in the church filling sandbags and putting them up. They may drive the vehicle to get the sand in the bags, but they're probably not going to be filling the bags. And this all like Caleb, and he's 80 years old, and he's still as strong as a 20-year-old, and the Lord can do that. But it's this idea that they are in charge of a family as well, and they're taking care of the needs of the family as well as the family of God. And I was correct in earlier telling you that Phoebe, uh, she was a servant of the church in Sancria. And that servant word there is the word for deacon. And so she was probably serving as a deacon in the church. Now, there are official offices in the church. I think most of you know this. The book of Ephesians talks about it. How you have first Jesus Christ, he's the head of the church. Then he has appointed apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers and those are the offices in the church and the next one is deacons and deaconesses that's an official office in the church now how do churches operate with that because we know in philippians chapter 1 verse 1 there are the overseers and there are the deacons now in the church of philippi was there an apostle there well paul certainly went there but he probably wasn't hanging out there so you had the pastors 
the elders, and you had the deacons that were there. And this all lends itself, well, how does church government operate? There's supposed to be a setup for this. In the Bible, it tells us, well, these guys are in charge of the church and what's supposed to happen. Now, here in California, we're required to have a board. In Calvary Chapel, usually the board is commensurate or equal to those who are elders and they've kind of had experience and they know what's going on. They're usually one in the same. <clears throat> and then there are deacons inside the church. And these people may not be designated formally as elders and deacons, but everybody kind of knows. Like if you had to start pointing out who are the deacons and deaconesses in this church, I'm sure you could do it. You start coming up with names, even though they haven't been formally recognized. Or same thing with those who are in a position of an elder. There are those who are formally recognized as elders and those who serve in that position without being formally recognized. But usually if you're in a body, you know who those people are if you're a regular attender, if you're fellowshipping with the people who are inside the church. So how is it supposed to work? Who has the final say on things? Is it like the apostles that get together and have a huddle and discuss what's going on? Is that what's supposed to happen with the elders and the deacons? Are the wives supposed to be involved in that? Are the wives supposed to be outside of that? Who is the one that has the last say? Now, there are different models of church government. There's the community church, like several Baptist churches are like this, where every single person in the church has an equal vote with whatever goes on in the church. An elder is one vote, the pastor is one vote, deacons are one vote, an attender at the church is one vote. How quickly do you think things move? They don't move very quickly at all. You know, usually you have a committee that looks into something, and if the committee of five or ten members or three members, whoever it is, they decide on something, then that goes to a vote in a general church meeting, and if the committee is unanimous on it, usually the body says, okay, but there's usually discussion, and maybe there's some concerns that come up, and they voice those opinions in an all-church meeting, and then they have a final vote, and everybody votes, and it's by majority, and if it passes, then they go forward with that. Very slow. Now, that's one way to do it. The other way is the presbyters or Presbyterian church or reformed church, Calvinistic church. That's where the elders are in charge. The elders and the pastor is considered one of the elders and each of the elders has one vote and they decide what happens inside the church. And if there's some politics going on, you know, a lot of times there's turnover in, in every church, there's turnover. And so you have some new presbyters or elders get involved in the presbytery uh, where the elders are ruling. And if you have the older ones there and you have some younger ones come in, usually the older ones will say, well, we've never done it that way before and this is what works. And the younger elders will say, well, you know, but we need to change some of those things. We can be sticks in the mud. Oh, but scripture says this is good and listen to your elders, you know, and there can be conflict going on and there are real problems with stuff like that. And there's going to be problems in any church, but there can be unity in that type of church government as well. And then you have the Catholic church. How is the Catholic church run? Well, you have the Pope. And the Pope can say anything, and that's what stands. It's a Pope-led church. Uh, 
Now, underneath that, you have the cardinals, and the cardinals are in charge of the distribution of authority under them, and then you have those who can be uh, the priest in their own uh, little parish, and then you have some deacons that are involved in their uh, I knew one deacon in the Catholic Church. He started the Share Food Program in San Diego. Uh, his name was Carl, and I had conversations with him from time to time. It was actually on a professional basis, and that's what he did. He, he handled things like that. But the Pope, the Pope could come in to that particular church and say, Deacon Carl, we want you to change the Share Program to whatever, and they would have done it because the Pope said so. And then there was, well, I'm going to tell you about this one, the Church of England. The Church of England is the Anglican Church. Now, King Henry VIII, Henry VIII, I am, you know that song? Remember that song that went back? He had multiple wives, and two of them lost their heads. Uh, and he wanted to marry Catherine, or he was married to Catherine of Aragon, and he wanted to marry Anne Boylan. Now, there's several movies that have been made about this, and the Pope refused to grant him a divorce. And he was kind of incensed about that. So what he did, King Henry VIII, is he dismissed the authority of the Pope in Rome. And King Henry became the Church of England. He was the head of the Church of England. Today, King Charles is the head of the Church of England. Now, I don't know how that bodes if he wants to change doctrine inside of the Church of England. But he's the one where the final authority rests. Now, is that in Scripture anywhere, that a king of a country is the head of a church just because he's king? Queen Elizabeth was the head before she died. She was the head of the Church of England. And and so there's several different ways set up to use a church and its government and have it operate. Now, we have the Moses model in Calvary Chapel. Some people are afraid of that because there's a lot of authority that is invested in the pastor and the pastor can have the final say but that's a very precarious situation to have what if the entire board says no we don't think so and the pastor says oh yeah we are is there going to be a problem there there's going to be a problem and so we have the moses model moses model is where moses would talk to god kind of figure out what god wanted try to listen for the voice of god would go back tell the elders and the elders would implement uh, through the body and the priests, through the uh, people of God, the Israelites, what was to take place. It's similar to that for us. Now, there have been times where I've made decisions unilaterally, and uh, there were problems when I did it, but I still feel that the Lord would have had me make those decisions. But for the most part, I try not to make any decision unless it's unanimous. I don't want that kind of conflict. Why have that kind of conflict? I, I talked to or i've listened to several pastors that have the same thing it's like we're not going forward if it's not unanimous you know we want to make sure that the body is taken care of unless there's something that is very serious and there's a divided group there's one story in uh chuck smith's the philosophy of ministry of calvary chapel i i can't remember what kind of church it was under calvary chapel that met a calvary chapel i don't know if i think it was a korean church that they had there and they ordained the pastor of that Korean church. He was a, a dentist. And as he got ordained, he went out and he uh, elected elders. He assigned who would be elders inside the church. And those elders came up to the pastor, the Korean pastor, and said, 
we have determined that you need to go full time. And the Korean pastor said, God's not telling me that to go full time. God is telling me to remain as a dentist and still pastor the church. And so there was a big riff that was going on. The Korean pastor went to Pastor Chuck and said, you know, what am I supposed to do? Chuck said, fire all the elders, get new ones. You know, and that's what they did. They fired all the elders because they weren't telling or they were telling the pastor what he should do when the pastor, according to the Moses model, he's listening to God, what God wants him to do. So there are rare cases like that, but that's the Moses model. Are any of these right or wrong? Well, no, they're just a way of working. The Bible doesn't spell out how it's supposed to take place, but we do have elders, we do have deacons for the purposes of ministering to the body, and no one who is in a position of authority should ever mock or dissuade or put down or patronize any opinion of anyone that is in one of those kinds of positions. So then there was the laying on of hands. Now, in our vernacular of our day in the secular society, laying on of hands does not mean what it means in the church. Laying on of hands in the secular society, it means you're laying a hand on somebody. You know, you're, you're taking care, you're pulling them away. Laying on of hands in the church is an elementary teaching of the Christian church. This is talked about in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. And it talks about several things that are elementary teachings like baptisms. That baptism is an elementary teaching. Eternal judgment, the resurrection of the dead, those are all elementary teachings. And the laying on of hands. Now the laying on of hands is for consecration, ordination, blessing, healing, imparting of the Holy Spirit and for disseminating spiritual gifts. That's what's supposed to happen when you lay hands on somebody. So consecration... It's a declaration. You you make or declare something sacred. This took place, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21. It was the Day of Atonement where the high priest would place both hands on the head of the goat, figuratively transferring the sins of the nation of Israel onto the goat. And the goat was released into the wilderness towards the desert Jericho and there'd be stationed several Levites and they would watch that this goat would continue into the wilderness and that is symptomatic of what we experience today of how Jesus takes our sins places them on a sacrifice and they are taken away as far as the east is from the west and the goat would go east and of course Jerusalem was in the west and that's what they would do is is consecrate that goat for that specific purpose Then there's this idea of ordination or a conferment or an installation or an initiation. That's what the laying on of hands is. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 22 it says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And, And he gave Timothy instruction, don't just pick somebody and ordain them to a particular task. Wait See who they are. See what they believe. See their associations. See what they know about God himself. And and so they were to be set apart, hands laid on them for ordination purposes. Now, Jesus also laid hands on children to provide for them a blessing. If you just want to pray for somebody, you put your hands on them. And it's a way of blessing them as you pray for them. It's like showing fellowship, signs of approval, compassion, 
All of those things, encouragement. That's why we lay hands on people and we pray for them. Matthew chapter 19 Verses 14 and 15 talks about Jesus where he said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. And especially little kids. Now, these would have been little toddlers that he was dealing with. They would run up to him. What a blessing little children are. You know, our our family was out uh, this last week, and my grandson, he was on uh, my daughter was holding my grandson she put him down and he's just a little guy you know he kind of hobbles around everywhere and he came up and he just grabbed my leg and just hugged on it you know it's, oh, it's, it's papa and my father, you pick him up yeah you know and you shake him and you throw him up and you do all these things with him and it's just great it, it's a blessing i'm going to give you a parenthetical thought i just saw this video of this father and he's in i guess the master bedroom with two of his sons and he's taken up his sons and he's playing like he's a WWE wrestler. And he's taken his sons, and I mean, he's throwing them up and smashing them on the bed. And the kids are turning going, <laughs> and he, he pick them up, turn them upside down, hold them up by the legs. And the kids are just laughing away. And it's a great blessing to be able to play with little children like that. And I'm sure that's what Jesus did too. Jesus probably reached right into the rib cage and go, <laughs> and the little child would probably laugh a little bit. It's a great thing, laying hands on the kids. And of course, in our day and age, you, you do that with your own children, not other children. Otherwise, there could be problems. And, and then this idea of healing. Now, in James chapter 5, it says, If any of sick among you, call for the elders of the church and anoint them with oil. And the prayer of faith will make them whole. And so that's what you do. You take the oil and you, the best way is to just dab the oil on your thumb or your finger and you wipe it on their forehead and that's the easy way back then they would pour oil uh, over the head and you lay hands on them and you pray for them luke chapter 4 verse 40 this is also the case where jesus healed all of the people who came to them by laying on hands on each one and also in Acts chapter 28, verse 8, Paul landed on the island of Malta. They took care of them there. And the head of the island of Malta, his name was Publius. And his father was sick in bed. And so Paul went to see him. And after he prayed, he placed his hands on him and he healed him. And, and so that's for the prayer of faith to ask God to heal somebody. And then there's the imparting of the Holy Spirit, the dissemination of spiritual gifts. Paul did this. He would lay hands on people. Remember Timothy? was given a gift of the Holy Spirit by Paul placing his hands on him and he reminded Timothy in Timothy chapter 1 verse 6 of 2 Timothy to fan into flame the gift that he had received from Paul. Now, in verse 8 it says, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So these signs and wonders were not limited to just the apostles or the elders that were there but stephen was able to do great wonders and miraculous signs now there was malice against stephen in acts chapter 6 verses 9 through 14 there were a whole group of jews from the synagogue of the freed slaves and they began debating with stephen so there just like there are different churches there were different synagogues at that time 
And this particular synagogue, I, I don't know exactly where it was located, but it appears to be somewhere in Jerusalem, it was made up of slaves or former slaves. Slaves that had been indentured to the Romans that had been freed, that were Jews, maybe even proselytes to Judaism that were slaves. And they attended the messages and the fellowship at the synagogue, and it was called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, or the Libertines, I think, or the Liberty in the King James Version. And they were devout. They had been slaves, and they had been freed, and so they had a fellowship uh, in and amongst themselves. It says this in verse 9. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. Now, I, I, I just love a good debate going back and forth. I think most people do. Did I tell you about the debate that was taking place over in the youth group a few months ago? And the kids, normally when the, um, they're actually young adults, but when it got to uh, 8.30, the time that we normally leave, I don't think we got out of there until 10 because there was a discussion going on back and forth. And somebody who wasn't a believer was at the youth, and so the, all these questions and this banter was going back and forth, and the other kids were just mesmerized. They usually leave at 8.30, you know, it's done. We dismiss it then. But this just continued. There was only one person that left after 45 minutes, but everybody else remained there to witness the debate that was going on. It was, it was kind of fun. It was enjoyable. And, but at the same time, it can be a little tense, you know, when you start having those kinds of conversations with people. And I'm sure Stephen, being filled with the Holy Spirit, every objection that these guys, the synagogue of the freemen, came up with, Stephen would just retort right back and say, no, that's not what the scripture says, and here's what it means out of the Old Testament. And he probably went through several books of the Old Testament because he knew his history, as we will see in Acts chapter 7. He gives this history of what the Jews have gone through. And so he's debating back and forth with him, and they could not refute what he was saying. And it says that in verse 10. But they could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they couldn't get them on the intellectual ground, so we're just going to beat them up. You know, we're going to talk against this guy. We don't like him. We'll find another reason later, but we just don't like this guy, and that's it. And we're going to go against him. And so it says in verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. And so they went back since they lost the argument. They went back to the Sanhedrin and the elders and they started just talking to different people in this group. And I'm sure that at the, as they were listening to what was going on, these elders, the members of the Sanhedrin, they were just going, what? He said, what? Oh, you're kidding me. And if somebody does that to you, if they come up, do you know what happened? 
Just remember Proverbs says, the first to come forward to present their case seems right until another comes forward and questions him. If Stephen was standing with any one of these individuals or a group of individuals that went before the elders or the Sanhedrin privately and was talking to him about it, he could have refuted it there as well. And we always want to make ourselves look great in front of somebody that we're making our case to. We want to convince them. But unless the other party is there, it usually is fruitless. And we need to refrain from listening to full stories of what's going on. Because there's always another side to the story. But they were also getting deceivers in there to tell things that weren't true. So in verse 13, they produce false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And of course, false accusations. These are nothing new. This came against Jesus himself. Remember, Jesus said he would destroy this temple. He was referring to the temple of his body, not the temple that stood on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And also, they said that Jesus would destroy the law. They accused Stephen of destroying the law. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and not to destroy the law. And here we have the meekness of Stephen. The council members see that Stephen's face had become as bright as an angel. Now, would this not get your attention? He starts glowing on the outside. And I don't know how severe the glow was. Like Moses, his face was so bright, they had to cover it because it scared the people. Stephen's face, it was probably just like Moses's here. It says in verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is a miracle clearly right here. Now, we look in the mirror and we try to brighten up our faces no this was coming from the inside going out and they were staring at his face like what is going on with this guy i'm sure chills were going up their spines going oh man this is this is not good and so they're going to listen to him he's going to be a witness to the sanhedrin because this miracle of the bright face it probably lit up the room that was there and they wanted to see what was going to be next and so this is what God did in order to transfer the information of what Jesus brought, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was going to be a witness to the Sanhedrin. Remember, Jesus was silent before the Sanhedrin. But they needed a witness. Jesus wanted a witness to go in there, and he chose Stephen to do it. And so he's there with the chief priests and the, the elders and the people who are the leaders of the people. One day you might be called to testify in front of somebody, an authority of some kind. And just like the apostles, they didn't have to worry about what they would say because God would fill them with his spirit and give them the words that they were to utter. And this was the case of Stephen, and he had a captive audience. I'm sure everybody was dumbfounded, and they were quiet, and they wanted to listen to what was going on. So reviewing what is in chapter 6 here, there will be problems in any church. There were problems, Ananias and Sapphira that I just talked about. We, we know that there will be favoritism inside any church, people you prefer, and we have to really guard against that. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, it says, The following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when some of you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. I believe it. Every church has some kind of divisions in it. So we have to guard against that. Favoritism is forbidden. And there should be those in the church who were willing or they always are willing to take on the task of serving or waiting on tables. If you see that there's a task that needs to be done, hop in and do it. Uh, if you need permission, so to speak, ask for permission. I, I don't know of anybody that's been turned down and said, no, you can't serve in the church. You know, if, what do you want to do? You want to be a greeter? You want to be an usher? You want to help in hospitality? You want to vacuum the floors? What, what do, you, do you want to sing up front in worship? Hey, just come and audition. We'll make sure that you have a chance to do that if you really want to. Don't play an instrument. We'll let you do it a cappella if you have a good voice. We don't want you to be a distraction. We want to point you to Jesus Christ. And so we have to be willing to do that, especially anybody who wants to serve. You have to have this willingness on the inside. And if somebody gets appointed to a particular place, the body should be in agreement. If you appoint somebody that people don't like, they have to be well-liked inside the church. Could you imagine appointing somebody that's not well-liked inside the church? talk about problems you're just going to make problems for yourself if you do that and then there will always be opposition when we effectively share our faith when you're making inroads somebody is going to come along and try to interrupt that i have so many stories about that but we're running out of time and so next week we're going to get into what stephen actually said in front of the sanhedrin and they hated it so much they were so jealous of him that they executed him now for us what we're going to do stephen had this faith that he could just go forward no matter what because of the death burial resurrection of christ and we're going to remember that act of jesus of going to the cross shedding his blood for us being hung there until he died that sacrifice and we're supposed to do this as a memorial to jesus jesus said as often as you do this do this in remembrance of me that's why we call it a memorial at Calvary Chapel here, we don't believe that the cup and the bread actually turn into the body and blood of Christ. That would be transubstantiation and consubstantiation. We don't hold to that. We think it's just remembering what Jesus did for us. And so what we're going to do, as Kim begins to play here, I just want you to take a moment, give God thanks. If you need to ask forgiveness for any sins, ask forgiveness for those sins then i think you know the routine uh we'll have the ushers come up and we'll pull the bread and the juice apart you just come and take a piece of bread and you take a cup and you go back to your seat and you can wait and i'll say a few words and then we'll receive the elements together so kim go ahead